Last night I had the privilege of speaking to some believers and gave my testimony. And um, I told them that I've had uh, several opportunities to do presentations at the business level. And I never become emotional in a business meeting. I've worked for Microsoft, I've worked for Epson, Seiko Epson in Japan, Microsoft in Japan, and I've designed uh, software products and I've actually presented these products to the presidents of these companies. And they've actually given me the okay to develop the products and we designed them and created patents. But today, coming here and presenting the gospel to you guys is so much greater privilege than that ever was. It's such a great privilege to be here and I'm so glad that you've given me this opportunity for this humble servant. <laughs> I am not a pastor, I'm just a lay person, but I'm so glad to be able to present God's word to you all. And I hope we can learn together from it. It's official. I am probably the most self-absorbed person in the entire world that I know. And there's proof. Several years ago, my family and I went to Whistler, BC to go snowboarding. Yay. <laughs> I just saw a fist raised there. Whistler's an awesome place to go snowboarding. And I had just bought myself a brand new Burton snowboard and I'd been learning a bunch of new tricks of snowboarding skills and stuff like that with my son who's really skilled at snowboarding. So I wanted to have my oldest son follow me down the hill so I could show all of my friends what a great snowboarder I was. <laughs> and so my son and I devised a plan. We went up to this peak and we said, okay, down there about 350 yards down the hill, that's where we're gonna stop and take a break and we'll decide where we're gonna go from there. But from here, I wanna hit these moguls, I wanna hit this hard packed crud, I wanna catch some curves here, and I want you to follow tight right behind me with your cell phone. <laughs> he's on a snowboard, I'm on a snowboard, so I jump off and we head down the hill and he's right behind me, I can hear him. Then all of a sudden I'm lost in it, I'm just glorying in how great I am <laughs> on the snowboard. And so I head over to this, the moguls and I start hitting the moguls pretty hard and then I jump off of those and hit the hard pack crud and just do some deep curves. And I'm really enjoying myself. And I get all the way down after just having a grand time down to the sign where we said we were going to stop, 350 yard run. I stop there and I take a look. Which direction do I wanna go? I had three paths that I could actually take at that point. I could take the green run, never gonna happen. I could take the blue run, maybe, or I could take the black run. So my son then, I hear him pull up behind me and he's going, Dad, I fell. And I said, oh, okay, let's go down here. <laughs> he's filming this. So I take off down the hill and I start on the black hill and it's, oh wow, it's way too much for me. So I curve over to the blue hill. And I just enjoy the entire mountain of Whistler and I totally forget about my son. When we get back to the house in Whistler that we were staying at, I, I was so excited to see the video that my son had captured because I wanted to post it online and show my friends what an awesome snowboarder I was. So we go ahead and load it up on the computer and we set it up there and, and my sons know how to do all that kind of stuff. And so they set it up, get it running, and then we say, play. 
and all of a sudden you see me taking off and, and then Alexander following behind me and we're going for about maybe uh, uh, 30 to 40 seconds and then all of a sudden and then stopped. He had crashed and hurt himself really badly. But for me, as a dad, I was completely self-absorbed. I didn't even know that he was hurt. I, 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 don't, I can't even remember, recollect him saying, Dad, I was hurt. I was so self-absorbed into what I wanted to do on my snowboard. So that is an illustration of the way I've been reading the word sometimes. So self-absorbed that I, I miss some of the jewels that are in God's word. And so today, I'd like to actually help us all to open our eyes and take our eyes off of ourselves and, and look at the treasure map that James has created here. James is receiving the word from the Lord and he's writing it to the church and he's writing it to all the Israelites that are spread all over the world through all the nations. But it looks like the way that James has written this book, it looks kind of scattered all over the place. It reads like the wisdom literature of um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And it doesn't really look like there's a real thread through there because he starts out saying, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you experience various trials. But then all of a sudden he's deviating all over the place and talking about all kinds of Christian conduct, which is great for us to hear. And I think that what we need to do is take a look at the way that he wrote it and see if there actually is a single thread that he wants to bring all believers to in this book. I'm going to be here for four Sundays, and we're going to go through James chapter 1 today, 2 the next Sunday, 3 the next Sunday, and 4 and 5 as a double whammy <laughs> on the last Sunday. So. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to James chapter 1, and we can see what we find here. This is the way that I was reading this. I was reading it in terms of these are good tidbits for me to uh, use in my own Christian walk. But they still seemed kind of scattered, and so I said, Lord, you know, I need to take my eyes off of myself. What are you really trying to say here? What are you trying to say and so when I was reading it, I, I totally missed the, the first verse. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So if we take a look at this verse, it's to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. We need some context here because there is no other book in the Bible that actually says that. And James is the very first book that is written in the New Testament. And it's been 400 years since God has actually spoken or written to the Israelites. And James, how is he going to know where these people are at? If they're scattered all abroad, how is this letter going to get to them? So I needed to take a look deeper into this and understand what actually has transpired. If we take a look at 2 Kings chapter 17, Let's go to uh, 2 Kings chapter 17 here. 
I'm just going to read the whole chapter of 17 because I think it's super important that we get this. Because James is talking about a specific point that many of us struggle with because we live in the world, but we're not part of the world. And because we're in the world, we can tend to be sucked into some of the world's thinking. But we're not of the world, so we do have the thinking of the Lord, right? We fear the Lord. But James addresses that in a way by calling it double-mindedness, right? So let's just take a look at this chapter here and just see what we find. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So he was not as bad, apparently. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Syria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him up in prison. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala by the Haber, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So what's happened here is the 10 tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, are now taken away and they're being dispersed all over the place. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. Starting to sound like Japan. There they burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them, and they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger, for they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I send to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image of two calves, and made wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practice witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil things in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. 
Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight, and there was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria, as it is to this day. So at this point, Israel is no longer a nation that you could actually identify. What's happened is they're scattered all over the place. They're being taken away by the king of Assyria. And so how is it that James can be writing to the 12 tribes in all the nations. He doesn't know where they're at, right? Then the king of Israel brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sephravim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So now he's mixing these other people groups with the Israelites. That's what the king of Assyria is doing. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them. And indeed, they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own, and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. So you're seeing now, nations are all being populated there. We're actually starting to see nations in this region. Then the men of Babylon made Succoth, Benoth, and the men of Cunath made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nabhaz and Tartak, and the Sephravites burned their children in fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sephravaim. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods, according to the rituals of the nations among whom they were carried away. So verse 33 is the verse that I wanted to get to here. They feared the Lord. That's the Lord of Israel, Yahweh. That's God yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations among whom they were carried away. So they were double-minded. They had God. They knew his law. They knew all about his mandates, his commands, his precepts. 
and yet they were serving other gods of the nations that they were carried away to. And when you take a look at the time frame of when this is happening, this is about a century before the beginning of the country of Japan. Japan started in probably around 600 BC. And we know that the Silk Road and the Spice Roads were already in place. They were being put into place to deliver uh, goods back and forth. So when James is saying the 12 tribes scattered abroad, he's talking about these Israelites that have actually been scattered physically across all the nations. And they've taken these routes all over that part of Asia. And so now when we move more closely to the time that James is at, we start to see there were people coming back to Jerusalem to worship at Jerusalem during the Passover. And we know that there's a story. The other thing is, is that when James is addressing all these people, the nation, the Israelites that are in all these nations, how could he possibly think that this letter would actually get to them, right? Well, James is writing this letter after Jesus has gone through the temple, Herod's temple, which is about two and a half times larger than Solomon's temple because that was destroyed and King Herod had made a new temple about 20 uh, BC. And so all these merchants now from all these countries are coming back to Israel from the places that they had been spread out to. And they come there and they set up shop inside this temple area. And Jesus comes in riding on a donkey for the, the, choosing, the, the choosing the Lamb Day. Yes, yeah. And, they're, and, they're, and all the kids are singing Hosanna to the King, right? Well, at that point, he gets to the temple and he goes and turns over the money changers' tables. Well, I had always thought that that might have only been just the Pharisees that were money changers and selling things, but there's not really enough of them to be doing that kind of thing. There were 3,000 at least, right? People that became believers that were from many different countries. So there must have been so many more people there that were buying and selling things and where best to sell. It was at the temple. And Jesus went in there and said, he whipped them. And what did he say? He said, this is not a place for all the merchants of all the nations to come and do this. This is a house of prayer for the nations. This is a house of prayer for the nations. So James knew there is a possibility to get this word out to all the nations. If prayer can go through there because the people are coming to this place, it can certainly get back out there. And there's one other story that we know that proves that this book of James could actually travel as far as 22,000 kilometers to Japan during that age. And that is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who is traveling from Jerusalem to Gaza, but he's on his way back to Ethiopia. That's 4,000 kilometers away. And he's riding in a chariot. I don't know what kind of chariot it is, but he's reading a book. When you take a trip, like when Suzanne and I came out here to Japan, what's the first thing you do? You're taking a long trip, you go and buy yourself a good book, right? Isn't that what you do? Well, that's what this guy did. This Ethiopian eunuch, he came to worship in Jerusalem and he bought himself a good book. 
it was the book of Isaiah. And he's reading that on his trip from Jerusalem to Gaza during that, that one section. And if we just take a look really quickly in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship, because he, what? He was a believer. He was a Jew. How do we know that? Because he was actually coming to worship in Jerusalem during the time that Jesus was there, during the time that the apostles were preaching the gospel, right? And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? That's the question that God asks all of us when we sit down and read the Bible. Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And I think that's what this book of James is. Every verse in the book of James is a little treasure map that helps guide us to exactly what God wants us to know about the Christian life. And there is a single thread I think we can find when we get there. I'm, I'm getting there. Um, so I just wanted to lay out the context of this. So this Ethiopian eunuch becomes a Christian believer. He is not just now a Judaistic believer in Yahweh and doing worship in that Old Testament manner. He is now a follower of Jesus Christ because of the testimony of Philip. Also, Peter stands up and says on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes on them and all the believers and the disciples are out there and they're praising God and preaching to the masses, Peter then has the opportunity to share with all these people that are hearing the apostles preach the gospel in their own language, somehow, miraculously, supernaturally, all of these many nations that are gathered there are hearing the gospel for the first time in their own language. So what are they going to do? They don't actually reside and dwell in Israel. They actually are merchants traveling along the Spice Road and along the Silk Road to these way off places. And how do we know that? Because when Peter is saying, talking about this, now turn to Acts chapter 2. What do we see here? Peter says in verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. That means as far as Japan, as far as the western seaboard of the United States, if they actually could get there at that time. But it, it certainly is the case for today because the Bible is for all men for all time. So we know that James knew somehow this book that he was writing was going to get to all of the Israelites in all the nations. 
So now we can get to what James is talking about here, and he's addressing the church, the Christians that have actually gone back to all those nations that were God-fearing. They were double-minded yet because they knew some of what God had done for them, but they were also worshiping other idols of the countries that they were living in, the nations they were living in. And now these new believers, they were being sent out to all these places. But at the same time, at the time that this is happening, we have a young man named Saul who is going from house to house looking for Christians. And he's seizing the fathers out of the homes and he's making them be stoned to death. And he's leaving widows and orphans everywhere, scattered all over the place. So we've got the double-minded Jews that are Israelites all over the nations. And now we've also got the widows and orphan Christians, right? And we see this in James chapter one. And so I'll get to this in a second here. So when we take a look at this, James now addresses these people with the first sentence after his greeting. And he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now imagine after that setting that we just saw of all the Israelites scattered everywhere, and then a small group, a population of 3,000 plus of Christians. But they're going through incredible trials. The Israelites have gone through trials of exile and captivity, and now the Christians are going through trials of having their fathers and mothers being killed, leaving widows or orphans. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So just like when we read these first two verses, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. What faith are we talking about here? This faith that we're talking about is the faith of Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, right? What he has done, the Messiah. It's totally different from what the Jews had been instructed by God in the past. This is now a new Testament, this is the actual Messiah that they're believing in. This is the one that God has sent to the world to save the world for all of those people that would believe in him. And so what we need to do at this point is actually to identify really what this faith is about. When we look at the first verse again, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that it's the Christian faith that we're talking about here. It's specifically about the Christian faith. Interestingly, when you read the Japanese Bible, it says that when knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, the word testing or test in Japanese is tamesu. And it's single Chinese character made up of two basic parts. And those two basic parts are equation or formula and the word. When you take a test in school, there's always a key, right? An answer key for a test. Well, in the Japanese language, tamesu has the kanji part for formula and the kanji part for word. But now we need to understand what is this word that we're talking about? If this is the key, where do we see anything written about this word? If we go to John chapter one, verse one, we will see who this word actually is. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. This test, the formula, the answer key, this is talking about Jesus. This is a great illustration of using the Chinese language. I'm not saying that this is where it came from, but this is a great place to illustrate what the test is all about. Now, if we're testing our faith, what is the faith that we're testing? If you look at the Chinese language again, faith is made up of one kanji character for faith, but it's made up of two parts. And the two parts are a man or a person standing next to the word. Well, if we're in China or Japan, and the religions of those times are Buddhism and Shintoism and Taoism and, and all these other religions, then why in the world are they using a man standing next to the word? Why wouldn't it be a man standing next to an infinite number of gods for Shintoism? Why isn't it a man standing next to emptiness for Buddhism? Why isn't it a man standing next to some other idol? If you take a look at it in John chapter 1, again, let's go back there. The key here, I think, that we have to understand clearly is that in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Well, what is his name? Of course his name is Jesus, right? But we also know him as the Word, right? Because it says in John chapter 1, verse 1, at the very beginning, he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know that that's what he's called at the beginning of time. What about the end of time? What about in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13? It says, He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. There is no person in the world that is called the Word. No one is given that. Only Jesus is given that. There is no actual real document like this, a historical document, a document that is given to us by God that says, this is the name of my son. He's the Word. And you must believe in him. All believers in all the world of all faiths are going to be judged by this key. And the key is Jesus. And we know that because he's the word. The formula for the test is the word. So now let's go ahead and read through James and see if there is this thread of the word. The word, the word, the word, the word. Let's take a look at the treasure hunt James sent us on. It is absolutely mind-blowing. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So James is writing about a person that is lacking wisdom. Well, we know that there's a story when the disciples and Jesus 
were walking from town to town, a young man came up to them, a rich young ruler, and said to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? He was lacking wisdom, right? He was a follower of Judaism. He already was following all the rules. Jesus said, I think you already know the rules. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't commit murder. You shouldn't steal. You should honor your mother and father. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And he says immediately, I've done all those things. How many of us here can actually say that? I don't think any would, would dare say that. Why? Because we know what Jesus meant. You know, Jesus said, if you have hate in your heart towards another, you've killed them already. If you have lust in your heart for a woman, then you've already committed adultery. So there's no way I would immediately say, oh yes, I've observed these commands all my days. But he does this. He's got all this confidence, but he knows that he's lacking wisdom. So what does Jesus tell him? Hey, I want you to be full. I have compassion on you. He looks on this rich young ruler with compassion. And he tells him, there's one thing you lack. And that is, you need to sell all of your wealth and distribute it among the poor. And the young man could not do that. He had to walk away sad because he was double-minded. God says that you can't serve wealth and God. You can only have one master. So what would have happened if he had followed Jesus, if he had sold all of his possessions and given it to the poor and distributed it to the poor and followed Jesus, what would that symbol look like? He would look like the man standing next to the word, right? He would be a follower of God, a true believer. He would be following along and learning and getting wisdom from Jesus Christ had he given up all of his wealth and distributed it among the poor. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so the idea here is that what I was thinking was that if this rich young ruler had actually given his wealth away and not been distracted and so self-absorbed in himself, he would have been able to receive an amazing gift of the wealth of knowledge from Jesus Christ. There's probably not one of us in here that would not want to actually receive from Jesus Christ directly from him, right? I mean, we would all want that. But there are probably things that are holding us back from actually being able to do that. Me, myself, if Jesus was here and I was in the same situation as that rich young ruler, are there double-minded things that I have that would make me not be able to follow Christ in the way that he would like us to? So again, we're tested by the word rather than tested by how good we are with all of our wealth. This rich young ruler, by the way, in Israel's time, and according to the disciples, they were looking at him and going, if this guy can't enter the kingdom of heaven, who can? Why were they looking at him that way? It's because through all of the thousands of years, all the way up until that time, the symbol of blessing by God was wealth, great wealth. Abraham had enormous wealth. Isaac, Jacob, and King Solomon, and David, they had massive wealth. That was one of the symbols of identification of someone following the ways of God. Because in God's economic kingdom on the world, that's the way it operated. 
he blessed people with great wealth and people could see that. But when Jesus came, that became something that people got distracted by because now we need to follow the word, not following the blessings as an identification. This is not a way for us to promote our own self-ambitions and try and amass great wealth and be pious on the outside with lots and lots of wealth like this rich young ruler. We need to give that up and go and follow the word. So let's take a look at the next section here. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. As a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So this seems like, okay, wow, we've uh, now are trying to take a look at just uplifting the poor people and we're trying to humiliate the rich people. Um, but I think what we have is this is a little indication by James as to what he's talking about. And here's the thread. And that is, when we look at the phrase that he's using here, as the flower of the field, he will pass away. So what is the verse that uses that same phrase? That's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. And it says, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God endures forever. So we've got a thread. Now we've got the thread again, right? It's the word we're talking about. The word of God lasts forever. So while the rich man in all his glory and all this stuff, even as he's doing his daily tasks, all that stuff could go away. Just like when the sun comes out and the grass of the field and the flowers wither, but the word of God endures forever. So we see that thread there. I forgot to mention that in James chapter 1, verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, referring to the rich man that has got great wealth and is so wanting to serve God. In Psalm 119, verse 113 and 114, it says, I hate double-minded people, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word going from the double-minded man to the word. Again, the thread is there in verse 8, and then verse 9 and 10, and into 11. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In John chapter 6, verse 63, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So the man who endures temptation, for when he is approved, he will receive the crown of life. We're talking about a, a, a treasure map here of the trying to find the crown of life, and it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. As a result of this, in uh, John 6, 66 through 69, 
many of Jesus' disciples and other followers were, were abandoning him because his words were too harsh. But here's what it says here. Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Verse 13 in James, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And we know when we're looking at temptation, where do we have to go to first? What's the illustration of that? Jesus was tempted, right, by Satan in the desert. And it says that in the first temptation, the very first one to lay the groundwork for how this test was going to be played out. And that is when Satan came to him and said, you're hungry, go ahead and eat this bread. Turn the stones into bread. That's the first temptation. And Jesus lays the groundwork and this is what he says. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, the word. This is not haphazard. We're hearing directly from James, or God via James, this thread about the word, and we're talking about Jesus. He's our joy. He's the one that we're going to find joy in as we get to discover more and more of the word. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So how can a young man or how can a person keep their way pure? Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Again, the word is the answer. It's the key. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So the key, the treasure key here that John is talking about is from the Father of the heavenly lights. Okay, then we got to go back and take a look at John chapter 1 and look at who the light is. If we go back to John chapter 1, it says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him, and he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Again, the name, the word. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. This is verse 18, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So James now explicitly comes out in his passage 
no longer using the little treasure maps that we've been reading along to get this thread. He is now stating it up front. He chose to give us birth through the word that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This one, again, I have to go back to the kanji for belief or believer. And that is, again, the man standing next to the word. Because I, I have a tough time handling and managing my tongue. And I need to learn to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak and slow to become angry. And every time that I have seen over the last couple days here in Japan, as I'm kind of getting acclimated to Japan and I'm being able to read the signs again, I see the shingo sign for the traffic signal. And the shin for shingo is a man standing next to the word. And for me, it struck me immediately. The shingo here is on and off, green for go, red for stop. And I was thinking, that is exactly the illustration I need for myself. When I'm thinking, oh, I should spit this out. It's just perfect to say this right now. Stop. Be quick to listen. Don't be quick to speak out and be slow to anger. And when the Holy Spirit says, hey, it's okay to speak again, and the light goes green, of course you can go. But for me, it's like God is saying, again, later on in James, we'll see this and we'll go through a, an interesting passage here, but it's about the fact that if you are a violator of even one piece of the law, you are a violator of all the law. And when I don't manage my tongue and I just blast through, what am I? In Japan, the Japanese police would say, I did shingo mushi. I ignored the signal and just plowed on through. Well, that's a violation according to Japanese law. Also in God's law, it's a violation when we just say things without stopping and being slow to speak. That's a violation of God's law. So that for me has been just an interesting little side piece, but I, I really saw that as a man standing next to the word. And again, we're measured by the word of God every single time, whether it's physical in the physical world or in the spiritual world, because God wants us to follow the laws of the land. As Christians, we are duty bound to follow the laws of the land and not be violators. We have to represent Christ to all these people, right? So we're following Jesus Christ, truth, belief, faith. That's what we're doing when we follow Jesus. In verse 21, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Again, explicitly James is talking about the word. This is Jesus. He's the word of God, and he can save us. Humbly accept the word which can save you. This also is part of this parable that Jesus was talking about, the sower of the seed. He's got a bag of seeds, and he's 
throwing that seed out everywhere. The seed is the word, and that word can get into soil. That word can get into really moist and good soil that can take root and grow. And it can also fall onto harder ground and maybe take root for just a little bit, and then it withers and dies, or it can be fallen on the path and the birds can come along and eat that up. That illustration in that parable also talks about the double-mindedness of people who are captivated or captured by all their wealth and it chokes out the word. So that's a good illustration, again, of making sure that what word we hear from God through his word, the Bible, and we put that into our hearts, we let that grow and flourish. In verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do not merely listen to the word. Again, it's the word we're talking about here. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The word deceive yourselves in the Japanese Bible is a kanji that is a single kanji, but it is made up of two parts. And the two parts is that is lacking. That is lacking. That's the word for deception in the Japanese Bible. Well, what is lacking? The word of God is lacking. If you are deceived, what is lacking? The word of God is lacking. You need to have the word of God. You need to be a follower of the word of God. A true believer is a man that stands by Jesus, the word of God. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in all they do. A new kind of blessing. If you follow the word, if you look at it intently for yourself and not be so absorbed in yourself, but you're looking at Jesus, you will be blessed in everything you do. Verse 26, those who consider themselves religious, yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. In Luke chapter 6, verse 45, it says, the good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And back to Psalm 119, by keeping it according to your word, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinance of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In today's world, we might think, Okay, are there widows and orphans in our church? There may be that are natural widows and orphans 
the father has died or the father and mother have died and so an orphan is left. But just like in James' day, there are Christian believers all over the world that are in this situation where the father has been taken from the home and been killed, leaving Christian widows and orphans. And it's our responsibility with the amazing ability for us to go to and fro and to send money and to send aid and to send support. That's the responsibility of all of us in all the church worldwide. This is something that Jesus commands. And now that we know that the thread of this whole passage that God is talking about, if a man wants to be religious, and my mom was pointing out, Christianity is not religion. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus. That's a man standing next to the word of God. If we want that kind of relationship, we are going to have to take care of our brothers and sisters in places where they can't take care of themselves. That's our responsibility. Jesus says, or James says, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And Jesus said, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. James starts the whole entire passage out saying, consider this joy. Consider all of this, every single verse as we go along, joy. Because in it, there's a thread of knowing Jesus Christ himself through the word. And that creates immense joy. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We need to be like the rich young ruler, but then discovers the treasure in the field. And for sheer joy, he buries it back in the field, sells everything he has and buys that field so that he has true joy. That's what James is talking about. Follow Jesus Christ. Follow the word of God. Be next to him. That's what that kanji is. It's not separated a man and the word. They are together as one, one kanji. So that illustrates the way our life needs to be. We need to be followers of God's word and help us walk out the Christian life. So I think I've, I've run out of time here, maybe. I don't, I'm not sure, but I've certainly run out of my energy. <laughs> but thank you so much for being patient with me. And I, I just pray that that has blessed you today.